I definitely gotten a, a better feel for people's attachments to habits. And this is something that I learned when you want to change a habit. See, everybody has a set of good habits and neutral habits and bad habits. And so when you want to change a bad habit, and if you want to replace it with a good habit, then just piggyback it with one of your good to neutral habits, like literally pair them up. And if you want to adopt another good habit, then just do it right next to within a close time frame to the good habit you're already doing. And then it becomes easier to create that other good habit that may be replacing one of your bad habits. I'm Doug Bopes personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Alan Aragon. Alan is a nutrition researcher and educator with over 30 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement towards evidence-based information. His notable clients include Stone Cold Steve Austin, Derek Fisher, and Pete Sampras. Alan writes a monthly research review providing cutting-edge theoretical and practical information. Alan's work has been published in popular magazines, as well as in peer-reviewed scientific literature. He co-authored Nutrient Timing Revisited, the most viewed article in the history of the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He is also the author of the highly popular book, Flexible Dieting, a science-based, reality-tested method for achieving and maintaining your optimal physique, performance, and health. So with that said, let's get this conversation going and welcome one of the most respected voices in the health and nutrition space, Alan Aragon, to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Doug. It's really a pleasure to be here. I know, man. We were talking for quite some time before. I was like, man, we better get this thing going. <laughs> well, you know, 25 minutes of chat yeah. before starting the podcast. No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. There's a lot of things that I'm interested to talk to you about. I mean, most of which are on the flexible dieting, the nutrition, the evidence-based research side of things. But the other thing that I think is is fascinating to me is that you have been sober now for four years from alcohol. And being that you are the guy who is about flexibility in your life, flexible dieting, flexible nutrition, like how has that worked with you abstaining from alcohol for four years? Was there any challenge with that? Yes, absolutely a challenge, um, an internal challenge for sure. I decided to abstain from, from drinking completely instead of cutting back to moderation. And so I think that this is a personal choice that people need to make when they come to that juncture in their lives, if they come to that juncture in their lives. And uh, I made the decision towards abstinence from a pragmatic standpoint. Like I just wanted to give my family peace of mind and I just wanted to reduce the chances of alcohol related bad behavior to zero. And so the only way to do that is to reduce drinking to zero because I, I love drinking so much and I drank so damn much. And that was that. Not everybody's situation is going to be like that. I Definitely don't believe everybody needs to abstain. And even the literature shows that it's possible to cut down to moderation and succeed. But the people who tend to succeed at adopting a moderation protocol, either, you know, it's usually by using an app or some sort. The people who succeed at that have less severe degrees of alcohol use disorder in the first place. So the folks with very severe alcohol use disorder, they tend to not do very well on going back to moderation. Deep down, <laughs> I think that I could go back to moderation, but I won't. Not anytime soon, not anytime within the next, I don't know, 40, 50 years. Maybe when I'm 90 years old, I'll go, woo, we made it to 90. I can still lift weights and then I'll have like a glass of wine or something. I don't know, but I've made the decision. 
and I'm sticking to it. And it's been working great for me in all aspects of life. So the decision has been very positively reinforced through improvements in my health, improvements in my relationships. And when I say health, I mean, from just mental, mental health, cognitive sharpness and body composition, strength, fitness, everything. And so I'm not motivated to even dive back in, but there is a kind of this uh, thought that does run in the back of my mind saying, you know, it would be ideal to just be a normal person and not a weirdo who abstains from alcohol in all situations. It would be ideal to just on occasions that drinks are brought out and the toasts are raised to just have a glass on occasion, you know, but in my particular set of circumstances, it's pragmatically better for me to just not do it. And so it bugs me every, I mean, it regularly bugs me that I don't just be moderate and just be a, a normal person so that the issue is never raised that, oh, damn, Alan doesn't drink. Well, oh, that's interesting. You know, I would rather just have that glass of champagne or have that freaking here. Cheers. Let's, all right, boom. Every once in a while. But, and it, yeah, it, it does bug me, man. But the good thing about food and drugs is that they're very different. And it makes it easier for me to justify complete abstinence of the particular drug, alcohol, which is very, very powerful in terms of its destructive potential compared to, let's say, an apple pie or, or somebody's, somebody's kryptonite might be an apple pie or it might be a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Uh, <laughs> that kryptonite has far less acute destructive potential than the bottle, you know. When people try to draw a parallel between food and drugs, there are distinct similarities and there are similar neural pathways that are stimulated by food and drugs, the dopaminergic pathways. However, it's wrong to equate food and drugs in terms of addiction not the least reasons of which are genuine physical withdrawal is absent in abstaining from food versus abstaining from alcohol, for example. And also the sheer magnitude of the physiological effect of the stuff is just far greater with alcohol versus, let's say, your pint of Ben and Jerry's or alcohol versus your, your apple pie. It's like comparing one of those you know, those crotch rocket ninja 1500s to a bicycle. <laughs> it's that different in terms of magnitude. Or for, you know, for my dudes in the West, Harley Davidson versus a Huffy. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's how I justify abstinence is just my own pragmatic decision. And also the fact that food and drugs are very different in terms of magnitude of effect and, and things like withdrawal, even though they share certain neural pathways of reward. And also, it was just a personal decision. And if somebody wants to abstain from a given food, I don't encourage that. But if that's what works for the individual, then I'm, I will concede to that. I'll go, okay, that's you. That works for you. Then do you. Fine. I don't issue this universal directive of everybody's got to be, in quotes, flexible and moderate with every single food out there. I think people are at different places in terms of their wiring and in terms of their relationship with food. And if some people actually can sustain their diets better by avoiding certain foods and this doesn't result in periodic binge episodes, then fine, they can do that. I mean, number one, I guess to say like, thank you so much for sharing what you shared and like kind of being vulnerable because I know it's not easy to, to talk about this stuff sometimes. And you kind of confirmed that what I already had perhaps thought in that you had this internal battle to where you are this guy who your work and your brand is essentially about like being flexible, not being you know so rigid in your patterns, in your habits and what you do in that, although you've you know chosen to abstain from alcohol for for years, that you still have these feelings inside that's like, you know what, like, I think I could be okay. I think I could do it. And I guess like to piggyback off of that, if, if you don't mind sharing, like other than you know that your life is better right now and you feel better, what motivates you? What drives you to not go and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and try moderation. What, what kind of motivates you to keep going down this path of abstinence? My wife and my two kids, peace of mind. Uh, I put them through hell 
when I rock bottomed out. I train wrecked my life and my career. And everybody felt the fallout of it. It was a horrific trauma. And so I don't like drinking enough to compromise everybody's peace of mind in my family. It's not that freaking good. I like coffee and chocolate and steak better than alcohol, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that really shows how much I like those things, by the way. I adored alcohol. And it does bug me regularly that I, I'm not just moderate with it. But the motivating factor is the peace of mind that my wife and my kids get as a result of me being abstinent and knowing that that kind of disaster is never going to happen again in their lifetimes. I love that, man. I love how your wife, your kids motivate you to not only become a better person, but to keep you on this path of recovery in a way. And then also, I think what's really touching is that you remember like how painful those moments were, not just for you, but for the people around you when you kind of bottomed out and we're in the thick of this addiction. And then you also now, you also, you know, not only acknowledge that, but you talk about like that it's just not worth it. Like, you know, where that got you and the situation you were in and how it impacted other people and what you're doing now and the other things you like are just a lot better than that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, even if I was successful with moderation, they would be worried. As long as I go back to moderation, they would be worried. They would live basically in a like low grade worry, <laughs> you know? And so to me, it it's not worth it to put them through that. Even though I would be freaking fine. I mean, if I commit to not drinking, it's going to happen, period. And it, and that's how, how it's been. If I commit to X number of drinks a day or a week, that's what I'm going to commit to. But even if I did that successfully, I would still put my family through a degree of stress and worry that it's not worth it. Right. You're right. It's not worth it. And I can imagine like them thinking like if you went and did something and started drinking in moderation, they'd be like, oh my gosh, like, is this going to end up the way it did a few years ago? Or is this going to get any worse? Is it going to be able to, to maintain this? So I definitely understand what you mean by that. And I want to go into like the growth that's happened from that as far as what you do now, because now in what you've been doing for your career is you've been coaching people in the health and fitness space, communicating evidence on things like you know exercise, nutrition, and that sort of thing. So how is your experience through that, like kicking a habit that wasn't good for you and the mindset shifts that had to come from that, and then almost like the you know, surviving the cravings and temptations, like how has that maybe changed you or helped you convey your message a bit better in this space of health and nutrition? The big thing that it's done is it's taught me how to cope with stress without relying on an external substance, without relying on the stimulation of a, of a substance to put a Band-Aid over the anxiety and the stress. And that's a skill that I was inadvertently suppressing for, you know, at least 10 years. So my drinking career, <laughs> my drinking career began in my early 30s and it ended in my late 40s abruptly, my mid 40s abruptly. And so during that time period, during that 10, 15 years, I conditioned myself to reach for the alcohol when the going got tough. And so the difference between then and now is night and day because now when the going gets tough, I feel all the feelings, I see all the variables, and I'm forced to formulate solutions. Whereas in the past, I just put a Band-Aid and blinders on as to the problems in front of me. And that's been the biggest aspect of growth is I basically grew up <laughs> from a, an emotional and uh, problem-solving perspective ever since I had an accelerated sort of crash course and actually, be, you know, becoming an adult <laughs> ever since I quit drinking four years ago. So that has been the biggest part. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest blessings that comes from transformations like you just described is our ability to learn how to deal with some of the stuff inside of us in a way that's healthy and develop new coping strategies. But being in the space that you're in and that you coach people that are struggling with certain habits, how has this helped you 
as far as coaching clients and maybe communicating on social media? Maybe have, have you gained more empathy for people when they're struggling with changing a habit? Have you been able to understand how, what people are going through? Like, like what's that been like? When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach further, and go the extra mile. The relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed up recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Doug. Again, that's insidetracker.com forward slash Doug. Take advantage of this great deal. Now back to the show. I definitely gotten a, a better feel for people's attachments to habits, for people's attachments to foods, their emotional attachments to various behaviors. And it also made me aware that when you want, and this is something that I learned I wish I could attribute the source properly to where I learned this, but when you want to change a habit, it's always, see, everybody has a set of good habits and neutral habits and, and bad habits. And so when you want to change a bad habit, and if you want to replace it with a good habit, then just piggyback it with one of your good to neutral habits, like literally pair them up. And then that way you've already in this just instinctive and reflexive routine with some good habit, let's say. And if you want to adopt another good habit, then just do it right next to within a close time frame to the good habit you're already doing. And then it becomes easier to create that other good habit that may be replacing one of your bad habits. And so, and it also showed me my own experience in, in quitting is that good habits that you are able to develop just literally fuel and feed other good habits. And so it's almost like the rich get richer type of thing in terms of good habits. It's a really cool cascade things that happen as you add good habits to your lifestyle and, and replace the bad stuff. But yeah, to your point, I definitely developed a lot more empathy for people's emotional attachments to certain foods and their, I guess, enslavement to certain bad behaviors. And it's also given me ways to encourage people how to get out of those routines. So yeah, it's it's been good all the way around in those aspects. Thanks for sharing that, man. I mean, I think habits and kind of forming new attachments to certain things in our lives are often, they are, or they're so important to, I mean, not only developing these new coping skills, but also just becoming a better version of ourselves and growing as a person. And I think this is a good segue to get into what I, the first like nutrition subject I wanted to get into and in that there's so much information out there. I mean, there's people like yourself, there's so many people that are writing all these books, there's content online, there's paper after paper, there's magazines. And, and yet we continue to get more unhealthy as a nation, as a society, where each year I feel like we're getting more unhealthier and unhealthier and unhealthier. Like, why do you think we've gotten to this point that despite all these advances, like, does just people just feel like they are stuck and not able to improve their health? The answer to that, in my mind, is surprisingly simple. You're exposed to the evidence-based nutrition and training community, the evidence-based fitness practitioners, researchers, educators, and there's like half a dozen of us. You know, we were just talking about me, Lane Norton, and like, there's a few other dudes. We are such a small niche, and collectively, our audience is put together are a tiny fraction of the reach of uh, people spreading misinformation. They're usually usually physicians, <laughs> quacky physicians who write books and propagate ideas. And the reason why the general public is so confused is because they lack scientific literacy. They lack basic scientific literacy, and they lack a basic education of the fundamentals of nutrition and 
how food and energy affects body weight and body composition. They lack that. And then when you combine that with the rampant pummeling of the general public with misinformation by quacks with very large reach, very large platforms, large audiences, then you kind of have a vicious cycle that is kind of unending. And it's a very steep uphill battle for the evidence-based educators like myself. The best that we can do is try to expand our reach, try to write books that can get into the hands of the public. My recent contribution to this cause was my book. It's something I wish that could be in everybody's hands because it really clears up all of the misinformation and it really empowers people. Even when you, if you read the reviews on Amazon, it's like, it's like nothing I've ever read before in terms of people raving over a stupid ass diet book. <laughs> it's like people are talking about being, they, they almost sound like they've just been saved or something. And I love it. I'm really grateful for that. But that's all we can do, dude, is, is just try to make a dent, try to reach the masses. 90% of the information out there that the public is absorbing is really terrible in terms of its long-term sustainability. You've got physicians out there writing hit diet books, telling people to either not eat for days straight or just not eat anything but, you know, protein and fat. It's like, wait a minute. Okay, that's going to work for like three weeks to three months. But what happens when they hit the wall and then they start binging? What, what happens? You know, it. this stuff is all basic and fundamental, rudimentary to you and me. But to the lay public, they are just walking a minefield of misinformation, shooting themselves in the foot and failing over and over and over again because they don't understand the fundamentals of what's going on. I agree with you because there, there's so much information out there and people are getting it from so many different angles, so many different books, so many different people they follow on social media. And I think people often feel stuck because they don't know what to believe because a lot of it just continues to conflict with each other and people are just always confused. But getting back to some misinformation and maybe some myths that exist, like what are some things that just that are just straight up facts that in, you're 110% confident are a couple of the biggest nutrition myths out there right now that the people seem to be believing that are actually detrimental to their health. It's the lack of understanding. It's the lack of a proper conceptual framework of what's important for changing the body in terms of body composition, fat loss, muscle gain, weight loss, weight gain. It's a lack of um, proper conceptual framework of what's important and crucial for changing those things versus what's just in the background and is just incidental. So I'll give you an example. There is this idea that's constantly pushed out there by various quacks that, oh, it's about insulin. Weight loss and weight gain or fat loss and fat gain, it's about insulin. So you have to be very vigilant about insulinogenic foods and you don't have to worry about the <laughs> about other foods that supposedly are not are not insulinogenic and it's and this gives people the 100% incorrect idea that insulin is somehow a driver of change in body weight and body fat when insulin is literally just a side effect and insulin levels chronic insulin levels are just a, a side effect of whether or not you're consuming too much energy too too many calories on an ongoing basis that's what determines your chronic level of uh, insulin status or insulin action, and um, whether it be postprandial insulin responses or just ongoing fasting insulin responses, it's like this stuff is determined in large part, for the most part, by how much you're eating in terms of total calories by the end of the day, by the end of the week, and how much body fat you're accumulating over time. And that's determined by energy balance, relative energy balance, whether you're at maintenance or whether you're at hypocaloric conditions or hypercaloric conditions, in other words, at a surplus of calories. Insulin just responds to that. Insulin levels just respond to that. It's not the other way around. Insulin doesn't cause fat gain. People just have it totally wrong. Like insulin resistance, for example, the best way to arrive at a state of insulin resistance is to eat too much over a period of time. Like run hypercaloric conditions where the surplus of calories is not going towards building lean tissue. 
It's just going towards accumulating fat tissue. That's how you become insulin resistant. And there's any number of ways to to get there. There's any number of ways to run a caloric surplus for a period of time. People have it in their minds that, oh boy, well, insulin sensitivity and in quotes spiking your insulin, that'll cause me to gain fat. Therefore, I need to avoid X, Y, and Z foods. And it's usually carbs. And what people don't understand is it's the hyper palatable combination of various highly refined and processed foods that cause passive overconsumption of total energy in the course of the day, in the course of the week. So they don't understand that. And the message just is not getting across because doctors are saying, I'm not going to name any names of the quacks, but it's easy to pick them out. They'll say that since it's about insulin, what you need to do is just fast because fasting will lower your insulin. Well, holy shit, bro. Fasting also lowers the amount of calories you consume. And that's the issue. So yeah, it's easy for me to get agitated when I think about what people have wrong because it's not only a matter of teaching them the correct information, but it's also a matter of having them realize that most of the information out there that they're getting from quacky folks is utterly incorrect. And I think when it comes to weight loss and, and losing body fat, specifically, like a lot of these buzzwords are often like touted as being like the only way to do certain things to like keep your insulin levels low, fast to lose body fat. And in reality, like I've heard you talk about this, I've heard, you know, Lane talk about that. No, it's just about being in a calorie deficit. Like that's what's king in all of this. And so I think this would be a good place to maybe dovetail into flexible dieting because I think as much as there is a lot of misinformation out there, people are often confused. I think, you know, when it comes to weight loss and achieving an optimal body composition, you got to get back to the fundamentals and, and the basics. So maybe talk about what flexible dieting is. And then I think maybe after you talk about that, maybe we'll walk through a real life example. I mean, as a common thing that I hear is somebody who wants to lose 10 to 15 pounds. So maybe we can, in real time, you could walk me through how you would help somebody do that. Sure. Flexible dieting, what it means is the flexibility of dietary approach. So that's a concept that usually takes a while to sink in for people. So there is no single best macronutrient breakdown that you can be universally prescribed that'll work for everybody. That has to be individualized. There is no single best method for tracking intake and accounting for intake that'll work best for everybody. Some people will enjoy counting grams of protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Some people will enjoy counting portions. Some people still will be uh, even further along the continuum towards the non-quantitative side, the qualitative side, and they would prefer to just eat more of certain foods and less of other foods. You can't universalize the prescription for the degree of quantification of tracking. That has to be individualized. Another element that needs to be individualized, and you'll notice that the key word is individualization. So flexible dieting is really individualization of the approach and the methods. The hedonic allotment, or in other words, the junk food, the YOLO, the indulgence food, the fun food allotment, that has to be individualized. Some people do well on a little bit per day. Some people do well on a one banger a week. <laughs> Some people are fine with just zero, in quotes, junk food. And hey, got to be individualized. Meal frequency, the linearity, as it were, of dieting, whether it's cyclical or whether it's more steady, daily caloric restriction type of thing that can be individualized. So there are, are many aspects here of individualization and it doesn't make for a very catchy hook. It doesn't make for like a hit where this is the one single way you need to eat in terms of macronutrition and timing and food selection. Everybody needs to eat this way. I've found the solution. Let's sell the book. That, that would be a hit, but the reality is not that. The one thing I have to mention is that flexible dieting, that term has been erroneously synonymized with counting macrograms. Flexible dieting is not the same as counting macrograms. Counting macrograms is under the umbrella of flexible dieting because flexible dieting is the flexibility of dietary approach. And if you look back in the literature dating back to, gosh, even the mid-70s, but really kind of catching steam in the 90s, 
is that flexible dietary control is a cognitive style of restraint, of dietary control. So there's flexible dietary control and rigid dietary control. And rigid dietary control has been shown to be less effective in terms of maintaining body weight and staving off dysfunctional or disordered eating behaviors. So rigid dietary control has to do with people viewing foods and dieting in a dichotomous light. So rigid dietary control sees foods as good and evil, good and bad, black and white, all or nothing, whereas flexible dietary control sees shades of gray. And so, yeah, you're not going to make a hit out of shades of gray unless it's like, you know, <laughs> a romance book. So, Right. It's not really, you know, too sexy, I guess, to talk about it that way, because I think we live in this world of extremes where, you know, you see a lot that are either fully vegan or you see a lot that are fully carnivore. And there's so much in between, as kind of you and I talked about before we recorded. But within that, the scope of flexible dieting, let's just take the example of somebody who wants to lose some weight, somebody who wants to lose 10 to 15 pounds. So I would think that's a common goal is to, for people to improve their body composition. Like what are a few non-negotiables within that flexible dieting scope that need to happen? And then once you, you talk about that, like what is the first step after that, like once they understand what they have to do to determine things like how many calories they need to eat a day, how much weight should they lose per week, and that sort of thing? First of all, I would only be able to speak in very broad generalities here because every individual who needs to lose weight is coming from a different set of circumstances. So I'm going to speak in generalities of a very middle of the road type of person and not necessarily like the individual. So the non-negotiables are, if you want to lose weight, we want to lose what researchers are now calling high quality weight loss, which means a relative preservation of lean mass while you're reducing fat mass. The low quality weight loss would just be losing everything in high amounts. So <laughs> lean mass gone, fat mass gone. And so high quality weight loss involves sufficient protein and a net caloric deficit by the end of the day or the end of the week. And that needs to be sustained for a string of weeks. So that's the non-negotiable. The negotiables would be proportion of carbohydrate and fat in the diet. And of course, other negotiables are food selection, depending on how nitpicky you want to be with the spectrum of food groups and how balanced and complete you could possibly make the diet. And so that is kind of an art and science on its own food selection. But if we're talking about kind of the, the basic, basic nuts and bolts, sufficient protein, caloric deficit by either eating less or moving more or a combination of both and appropriate targets for rate of fat loss. And this is a big one. So we're looking at about half a percent or a full percent of total body weight reduced per week is a reasonable rate. And maybe an easier way to think of that is roughly a pound a week, possibly two pounds a week, if somebody is starting off significantly overweight or obese. And those are realistic targets. Because once people start thinking and imagining that you're supposed to lose like a pound a day, or like a pound every couple days, then they set themselves up for frustration and failure. So if you think that you can lose four to eight pounds a month, well, then at least that way you can stay motivated that you're making the right rate of progress. And um, that's kind of like the basic basic framework of that. And in order for people to impose a net caloric deficit, one of the kind of the simple and easy shotgun ways to do it is to eat 10 to 20% less calories than what currently maintains you. So whether you eat 10% less or more towards 20% less really would kind of depend on who you are as an individual and how much um, weight you need to lose. So people who are towards the obese end, they can target more aggressive caloric deficits, even higher than, than 20% in certain more severe cases of obesity. But that's that's the really kind of the, the oversimplistic framework of it. A couple things I wanted to follow up on. Um, I guess the first thing, as you said, making sure you get enough protein. If you could maybe touch on like how much protein somebody should you know set as a target. And then two, like you talked about like a good starting point for you know, we're just taking this this average person you're talking about to lose, you know, 10 to 20% less calories than they're consuming now to maintain their weight. How can somebody like establish a baseline to know how many calories they're currently eating? And then do you recommend them weighing for 
you know, three to five days or something in a row and like taking an average of the weights and just seeing what's most consistent. Like, so first it's like how much protein and two, like how can somebody begin to establish some baselines? Okay. So there's going to be two groups of people that you'll run into with respect to this question. So one group of people will already know what their maintenance needs are. They've been tracking the hell out of their intake for years. So they know exactly what they're doing. And so those people 10 to 20% down, depending on whether you uh, are already kind of lean and you're almost there or whether you need a little bit more aggressive deficit. And then the other group who are utterly clueless about what maintains them, it helps this group to know what the theoretical needs of their future body comp is. So let's imagine a guy who's walking around at 200 pounds, like let's say 30% body fat. So he has a substantial amount of weight to lose. Let's say his target is 170 pounds or 160, 165 pounds. It would help him to know what the maintenance requirements are of his targeted 160, 170 pounds at a given activity level. It would be helpful for him to know what that caloric target is because then he can draw a comparison between what he's eating now versus what he's supposed to be eating. So uh, if I can take a couple steps back and answer the protein question. Protein should be set for this population for weight loss. I would start at 0.7 grams per pound of target body weight, per pound of goal body weight. And that is a research-backed metric. The 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight is uh, a very common result of analyses investigating optimal protein for resistance trainees. It always seems to fall on 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And I would rather tweak that target to make it per pound of target body weight. Unless your goal is to maintain your body weight, then you would use current body weight. But using target body weight avoids the issue of um, overprescribing protein in obese individuals. So that's the that's to answer the protein question. And oh, if somebody has no clue about what, what is maintaining them, then they can take records for at least a week. I would almost prefer a couple weeks, but some people don't have the, uh, the wherewithal to track for that period of time. And so if somebody wants to know what's maintaining them and they have no damn clue, then the objective would be to have them maintain their habits and unfortunately, when people start tracking, they automatically eat less by a certain percent, 10% maybe. They automatically eat less because they start realizing what's going on. They gain an awareness and they subconsciously start eating better because they have to look at what they're writing down and then they have to look at themselves in the mirror. So even the act of having people write down what they eat makes them eat a little bit less. Nevertheless, it's better than not doing it at all. It's better than having zero awareness. So you have them track what they're eating every day for a week, and then you have them average out the calories, and there you have it. That's the theoretical, at least, amount of calories that are maintaining them. And I developed a calculator, which is a free online calculator, that helps people calculate what the caloric needs are of their target body weight. And so that is like a it's kind of a severe pain in the butt to do it all by hand. And so I did a calculator for that, for people who want to figure that out. And that's alanaragon.com slash calculator. And then you can figure out what the theoretical needs are of a given target body weight at a given activity level. And it's the cool thing about the activity level is we factor in exercise activity as well as non-exercise activity. And so that'll at least give them the, the theoretical number. And it's uh, helpful for a lot of people to know who have no clue what they need to be eating at their goal. And they also have no clue what is maintaining them currently. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm definitely going to link that in the show notes because my next question, you kind of already answered it for me, was to talk about you know what first comes to mind when it comes to getting a baseline and tracking things to figure out you know if you're going to be in a caloric deficit is often like what you're consuming right? Sometimes what's often overlooked is not just the exercise, but it's the non-exercise activity that we just naturally do on a given basis. So what are some of the things that people do on a daily basis that are considered non-exercise activity that often get overlooked? 
Well, this is mainly an issue with people who have trouble gaining weight because people who have trouble losing weight have just a, a shockingly low level of non-exercise activity. And they're very efficient at getting a lot of things done with a minimal amount of energy expenditure to do it. But the things that comprise non-exercise activity are anything from the amount of walking you do during your job all the way to the amount of fidgeting that you habitually do throughout the day. Even muscle contraction and tossing and turning while you sleep can factor into non-exercise activity. And even like fidgeting, if somebody listens to music through their uh, shift or just through their day and they're bobbing the head or they're tapping their fingers, that stuff can factor in. Non-exercise activity can also be just random movements throughout the day. And even the speed at which you walk around the house or the office or or your college campus, the amount of walking that you do, that also factors in. And uh, it's very common for people as they, they cross over, as they're done with college, to experience this extreme sedentary shift where they're at a desk in a cubicle at the computer all day, and then they drive back home and they open up Netflix, Netflix and then they're on the couch or they're on the bed watching Netflix and... Uh, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and that that's something that often gets, you know, overlooked as far as like the non-exercise activity because you don't you don't realize how much you might end up like move. You don't realize how much you end up moving throughout the day without necessarily going to the gym. It's just like on the other side where you start to track what you eat, you don't realize like how much you actually eat, you know, throughout the day. And I kind of want to go further down the continuum with this this average person we're talking about. And sometimes you'll hear the, this average person say, well, I'm in a caloric deficit. I'm not losing weight. Maybe my hormones are off or maybe there's something else going on. Like, what do you tell somebody? Because I'm sure you get this a lot as well. Like, what do you tell somebody when they come to you with something like that to where they say they're in a caloric deficit, but they're not losing weight and they start to blame, you know, other things in their life for it? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I just looked up the, the, the reference to a study that was really eye-opening. And it had a population, it dealt with a population that very commonly reports this, the claim that they are following a plan in a caloric deficit, but they're not losing weight. So this was the, the population that was studied in a trial by Lichtman and colleagues. It's a 1993 study, and the title of the study by Lichtman and colleagues is Discrepancy Between Self-Reported and Actual Caloric Intake and Exercise in Obese Subjects. So this is what happened. They used objective methods to measure energy in and energy out. They used a uh, indirect calorimetry, doubly labeled water. And they use this to assess their caloric balance throughout the trial. And what they found was actual intake was underreported by an average of 47%. And energy expenditure, that physical activity, was overreported by 51%. And so what we've got and these subjects claimed to have been eating 1,200 calories a day or less, but claiming to not lose weight. And these subjects were obese and they had a history of claimed diet resistance. But what was found out objectively is that they were underestimating their intake and overestimating their output to the tune of a total of about 13 1500 calories misestimate calories by that degree then no wonder you're going to be staying the same and you're going to claim to be diet resistant because that misestimation is just substantial so to answer your question people commonly don't have an accurate picture they don't have a grip on what's going on with their intake they mean well they're not necessarily purposely lying although sometimes they are but people just have a tendency to misreport. In this case, drastically underreport their intake and drastically overestimate 
their caloric expenditure. Yeah. And I, I would have to say that in instances where people have cut back on their caloric intake drastically and they find themselves plateaued and no longer losing weight, what they don't realize is it's not a drop in their resting metabolism. It's a drop in their active metabolism. So resting metabolic rate is the amount of calories that you burn in a 24-hour period just to survive. So, so, so just lying there to fuel your vital processes. And active energy expenditure is a combination of your exercise activity and your non-exercise activity. So if these folks are maintaining their exercise activity, then usually what has happened is an imperceptible, over time, an insidious drop in their non-exercise activity. And that can be a substantial difference from baseline to where they're at, at the, the point in their dieting journey. They could simply be burning hundreds, multiple hundreds, even, even close to a thousand calories less in terms of their non-exercise activity, depending on the individual. And so it's this drop, it's this reduction in energy expenditure that people are unaware of it. It just kind of creeps up on them over time. So it's either that or they just drastically misestimate and misreport either on purpose or by accident. And then there's always the element of binging that goes unreported. So when people say that, okay, I'm dieting hard, they may be talking about five to six days a week. And then there's a couple days a week where they have a business meeting or a social event or some sort of instance where they order drinks, appetizers, main, and dessert, and more drinks. And they do that for two days a week, and it completely obliterates the attempted caloric deficit that they tried to do over the five days of the week. And so there's that. There's inadvertent annihilation of the weekly caloric deficit with that. And then there's also cases where people just flat out binge and don't report it because of the shame factor of, of reporting a binge. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point about the binging. And when you're eating a level of calories that is so low, like 1,200, it greatly predisposes susceptible individuals to binging because of how deprived they feel. So I guess a take-home message from the point you just made is that when you've reached a point or you're at a place where maybe the scale is not moving in the direction that you want, or maybe your clothes aren't fitting in the way that, that you want, even though you think you're doing the right thing, it's time to bring it back to center a little bit and find a way to get recalibrated and really be meticulous about tracking everything and making sure that you are reporting accurately as far as your intake and your outtake, your input and your output, if you will. Like, what do you recommend as far as is tracking like food though? I feel like people are just so busy that, I mean, they can barely remember what they had for lunch yesterday that, that they don't have the time to sometimes just pull out their phone and start plugging things into an app, even though ultimately that's what might need to happen. Like what are some simple tips that you could advise people to do? First of all, you don't have to force everybody to, to use an app to track. One effective way is to just establish a routine of just ironclad, just core meals that you have every freaking day, day in and day out. The only way you can do this is if you like the meals. So establish the meals, establish the amounts, and just stick to it. Obviously, if you're a traveling food critic, you, you can't do that. But most people will be able to do this to where they just adopt an eating routine that's sound in terms of macronutrient targets and food selection so that you're not on this idiotically unhealthy diet. <laughs> and just literally stick to it. And then take note of what's going on with your body weight, your training performance. And yeah, you can look at things on, on uh, you won't be tracking, but you can just be aware and on a month to month basis, take note of how much weight you gained or lost take note of performance differences. And that way you, you can have an idea of whether you need to cut back on anything or increase on anything in terms of total calories, especially for the day. And the more people can kind of get cozy up to the idea that they can come up with a routine where each of their meals is something they look forward to. 
then they have a better chance of sticking to that routine. That's the spot that I would like everybody to get to. Like I know what my first meal of the day is. I love it. I know what my lunch is. I love it. I know what my dinner is. I love it. I know what my pre-bed snack is and I freaking love it. You know, there's no chaos there. And, and if I ever want to lose fat, I just cut back on whichever aspect of whichever meal that I want and just be consistent with that. If I want to get more swole, take up more space, I, I know I just need to increase my intake of whatever aspect of whatever meal I choose. And um, it's a matter of really just getting that core routine established. And then you can just increase or decrease from there, depending on what your goal is. You don't have to track because it's the same damn freaking meals every day. Right. I think this obviously, though, takes some, some time to get to a place where you have the self-awareness, you have the confidence, you just have the knowledge, I guess, if you will, to understand like what you're eating. I mean, I was I was very grateful to go through and get my certification through Precision Nutrition. So I understood like how to, you know, and I know you've, I've heard you, I think you've heard you talk about John Berardi, where you, you know, you learn to, you know, weigh, like, you know, look at the food and as far as like the palm of your hand and your hand and your fingertips and stuff like that, as far as measurements and just gaining an understanding of like how much food is in certain meals to where like when I know, when I look at a piece of chicken, I'm like, oh, that's four ounces, that's six ounces, that's eight ounces. But I would imagine that like a lot of people don't have that self-awareness to be able to look at certain foods and say, I know exactly what I'm eating. Because I think people, like you said, probably underestimate. Yeah. And the the palm size thing, the thumb size that and all that, that's all based on old school dietetics curriculum stuff. And so it was cool to see Precision Nutrition adopt that old school, almost like the diabetic exchange system. It's like sort of an adaptation of that. And yeah, this is something that we learned in undergrad of the dietetics or nutrition degree and then gets reinforced in the graduate program and stuff. And not everybody necessarily has the skills to know what portions are and stuff, but people can still assemble meals and know what they measured out and essentially eyeball it and then just stick to that. And sometimes uh, portions are, are pre-made. So what people can do is if you want to just establish a routine, then think of foods that have pre-established portions like your favorite type of fruit. Fruits are rarely going to change from one fruit to the other to any significant degree in terms of portions. Like eggs. Eggs are going to be <laughs> basically the same size throughout the you know human history. And then you've got things like pre-packaged foods, whether it's a yogurt situation or whether it's a protein powder scoop. It's always going to be 20 to 25 grams. And people can measure, they can measure like cups or half a cup of whatever given starch that they're going to be using. Slices of bread are always going to be the same. And of course you have people like panicking at the idea of having a slice of bread. Well, that's unfortunately, that's a problem they, they've got to deal with. And so just pre-portioned foods, they make things pretty easy for folks to get into a, a routine and just stay consistent, run the program for a month and see what happens. So a lot of, a lot of times it's, it is trial and error for people who don't want to take the route of establishing macronutrient targets and tracking them for a time period and seeing what, what that amounts to or what that looks like. And so when I was in the dietetics curriculum, we did teach clients portions of foods per the food group. And all you needed to do was get X amount of portions per food group. And this is what you would have through the course of the day in order to hit a balanced diet that is appropriate to your nutrient and caloric needs. But yeah, I agree. That is a, a skill that people would either need to get some counseling to learn or take some time to learn themselves. And so, yeah, it's, it's not easy, man. It, it's not easy because you can't just have somebody track a, a, a calorie number each day and say, okay, that's kind of the end all of what you need to do. There's more to it than that. And that's why there's certifications like Precision Nutrition. That's why there's professionals like, like you and I who can help people, who can help people do that. And I think that people need, people in the general public need to kind of respect the difference in their capabilities and their knowledge versus people like you and I who know what the hell we're doing and know how to affect change in the body. And I think people need to cozy up to the idea that they would hire, most people would hire a mechanic to fix their car. 
but they think they can just trudge it through themselves to change the body, which is much more complex in a lot of ways than a car. So I think people need to cozy up to the idea that professional help is a legit good investment when it comes to changing the body. Absolutely. And I think you're spot on, man. And I think it does take a lot of time. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of, man, I thought that I had this figured out, but I don't, but I'm going to keep trying anyway. It takes a lot of researching and finding people like yourself that, you know, finding people like yourself online that you can get some good information from. And I want to kind of put a bow on this, like losing fat topic. And I guess like the last thing, I guess we could go down is, so let's just say that somebody has gotten this figured out and over the course of a few weeks, they're now starting to see some results and lose some body fat. Do you just recommend them continue to reduce their calories by 10 to 20% of that number that you gave earlier as like this transformation goes on? Like, how do you advise somebody, the same general person we're talking about, how do you advise them to adjust their caloric intake throughout the continuum of this process? Again, individuals are going to vary in their tolerance for psychological diet fatigue. So while some people may be able to diet for six months straight and make great progress all the way through, others may need to take a week-long diet break every two months, even every, <laughs> every month, depending on how far along they are. And the process of deciding whether you want to break the plateau and get leaner or not is literally a, a negotiation with yourself over whether it's more realistic to further cut calories 10 to 20% or whether it's more realistic to increase energy expenditure, to increase training volume, however way you're going to do it, whether you're adding cardio or you're adding sets or you're adding exercises or both or you're adding just regular non-exercised activity or just adding walking. It's a negotiation that you have to make when you come to that point. And everybody's going to be different in terms of the realisticness in their program of whether they can even take their current 1,800 calorie intake down to 1,600 calories. Is that realistic? Maybe, maybe not, depending on the individual. Maybe it's more realistic to add another day of cardio. Maybe it's more realistic to add another... 15 minutes of cardio a day, depending on, on the person. Maybe it's more realistic to just add another set per exercise and just take a break. Take a break from the idea of restricting. And sometimes with folks challenging themselves to maintaining the progress they already got is a tough enough goal. So if you're at a point where you're deciding, hey, I want to get leaner and I'm already at a pretty, pretty good spot, then people have to consider the challenge of seeing whether they can maintain that level of leanness for another three months, another six months. Can you do it? Why not just maintain and see if you can improve exercise performance or fitness parameters during that time? And what people discover is that it gives them a good psychological break from constantly pushing the angle of restriction and getting leaner. And they get leaner anyway, when they're pursuing performance increases and they're just shifting the goal away from weight loss, weight loss, fat loss, fat loss constantly to, you know what? I want to see if I can actually do 10 pull-ups. I want to see if I can kick that up to 15 pull-ups. Maybe someday before I die, I'll do 20 pull-ups. <laughs> you know, if the goals are centered around performance increases, then some pretty magical things can happen because it gives people a psychological break from the grind of dieting. Hopefully I didn't complicate that answer too much. No, no, no. It's it's a grind. And I love how you brought up like choosing what works for you. And it all goes back to this idea of flexible dieting and just being individualistic and doing what works for you. And that if it works better for you when you're on this path as you're progressing along to increase activity, great. If it works better for you to you know, decrease the amount of calories you eat, great. I mean, if it works better to take a little break and then know that you're going to take this break and get back on the train at X, Y, and Z day, great. But you just have to do what works for you. And I just think people are really going to appreciate and value that insight, right? Because I feel like so many people, and I think we've touched on this several times, are so confused. They think that it has to be done one way and that's it. 
and that's just not reality. I mean, and I think that's why so many people resonate with your work and with your book. And I guess as we bring this, our conversation to a close, like getting into your approach more and your book, you talked about how when some of the reviews, you said that there's, people have said this is unlike any other book that I've read and that people are so happy. Like, why do you think your book and your work connects with so many people? It's because I've been doing this for literally 30 years. I started in 1992. How old was I in 1992? I was 20 in 1992. And there's a lot of folks who have been in this game for many decades, but they've just repeated like their first mediocre year over and over and over again. I feel like I've had a tremendous learning and experiential journey through the past three decades. And I put that into the book. So I've been in the trenches with personal training. And I've also been in the research world with publishing some of the most crucial papers that lay the foundation for practice guidelines for coaches and dietitians and stuff. I've been very privileged and honored to have been a part of the research world in that capacity over the last 10 years. So I feel like just the combination of those things going into the book makes it very different from really, I mean, a lot, a lot of the other books out there. I think that evidence-based practice is, is really kind of the marriage of what we know works in the trenches combined with whatever gaps are missing in the research. I mean, the research is a good foundation, but the research is so limited in terms of what it's covered with every population. And that's why we, we got to keep going with the research because there's so much gray area. But it's important that I've had 10 years of experience of nutritional counseling, 10 years of experience additionally with personal training, working with clients and seeing what works with different individuals. And I've been able to put that in the book, lay it out, explain it in excruciating detail. So people who are autodidacts or self-taught, if they commit to reading the book and learning the methods, then all this stuff will be really clear. I've always said that a nutrition certification manual can be built out of my little flexible dieting book. And what's really cool, you bring up precision nutrition, is this was maybe five years back where John Berardi, he sent me a copy of the new manual of the precision nutrition textbook. And he said, Alan, can you peer review this? Please, I'll pay you for your time in peer reviewing it. And at that point in my life, I did not have time or energy to take John up on his offer. But in retrospect, it would have been really cool for me to do that because then I would know that even more of the precision nutrition manual has, has my influence on it. So yeah, my book is different, man, because I put so many years and so much effort into this game compared to other folks in the game. Just been in, in it much longer with, with a whole lot more different avenues of experience. So, yeah, I, I hate to talk about myself like that. I feel weird. I feel like I'm bragging, but that's just the facts, man. People like to listen to people who have been through it and who have experience and have spent a lot of time in the trenches, like doing the thing that they're talking about. And so I think that's why they they relate to what you're saying. And I just think they also relate because what you're asking isn't some new rigid approach where they have to cut out food for days or they have to cut out this macronutrient or that one. It comes back to like doing what works for that individual and just adjusting where needed. So Alan, this has been awesome. I love how much you opened up just about your own personal journey and then just how real you got with some of the misconceptions out there in the nutrition space, as well as like some real advice on how to take the average person through this weight loss journey to do it effectively and efficiently. So I think people are going to want to check out your work, your book. They're going to want to follow along with you on social media. Where's the best place for them to do all that? You know, for the book, just go to Amazon, type in flexible dieting, Alan Aragon read the reviews. I mean, if you don't get the book after reading the reviews, you literally have no soul. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I mean, I've been so stoked about the freaking reviews. It's like, man, this is amazing. You know, I, I'm, I'm so happy. And I really want to thank everybody who's gotten the book and actually had the nerve to get through that 300 page book with 569 references. It's just insane for people to actually read the whole thing. And yeah, alanaragon.com is where you can find all my stuff. I started the very first monthly research review of the fitness industry, started that in 2008. So we're almost 15 years strong with Alan Aragon's research review now. 
And so that's my ongoing project. And you're reminding me, I do have to update my speaking page with a bunch of cool live events that are going to be happening and towards the end of this year, the beginning of next year and, and ongoing. But yeah, that, that's where you can find me is alanaragon.com. And if you're a social media person, then my social media handle on Twitter, Instagram, well, I don't know what it really is on Facebook, but it's the Alan Aragon. So at the Alan Aragon on Instagram, I started a TikTok account, which is hilarious because it took my friends like years of begging for me to get into the TikTok thing. But what I do with TikTok is I just take clips from my other social media and just post it on TikTok and I, do, I actually don't dance and people, well, I do, I can dance. I'm Filipino for crying out loud, but I won't dance on TikTok. Just so you know. <laughs> You're funny, man. Right, so I will make sure to, to plug all that stuff in the show notes for people to check you out and find out more about you. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Alan said about his own personal journey from you know, giving up alcohol and what that's done for his life. Maybe it was something that he said about why we're in this obesity epidemic that we're in in our society. Maybe it was something that he said about misinformation. Maybe it was something that he said about like what needs to happen to lose weight and how you can do that in a healthy and effective way. Maybe it was something he recently just said about his book. Whatever it was, tag Alan, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.